Chapter Three of J. Poindexter Colored by Irvin S. Cobb. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Manhattan Isle. The day we gets to New York is the day before yesterday, and we has been on the go so constant ever since, and I has seen so much it seems like my ideas is all mixed up together, same as a mess of scrambled eggs. The way it looks to me, the mainest difficulty with an author, especially if he's kind of new at the authorizing business, is not so much to find something to write up as tis to pick out the special things which should be wrote up, and just leave the rest be. So it is now my aim to set forth the main points which sticks out in my mind. Well, first off, soon as we gets in, we goes to the hotel. Beforehand, Mr. Dallas, he says to me, it's a quiet hotel uptown, but when we arrives at it, I takes a look around and I says to myself that if this here is a quiet hotel, they sure must have to wear ear mufflers at one of the noisy ones if they hopes to hear themselves think. To begin with, she don't look like no hotel I've ever been used to. She rears herself away up in the air, same as a church steeple, only with windows all the way up. And although the weather is pleasant, there is not no white folks setting in chairs under the front gallery. In the first place, there is not nothing which looks like a gallery, excusing it's a little glass to-do which sticks out over the pavement at the main entrance. And if anybody was to try setting there, the only way he could save his feet from being mashed off by people trampling on em would be for him to have both legs sawed off at the ankles. You'd think that, being uptown, the neighborhood would be kind of quiet, with shade trees and maybe some vacant lots here and there. But no, sir, it's all built up solid, and the crowd's as mighty near as thick as what they was down around the depot and in just as much of a hurry to get to wherever it is they is bound for. Even with all the jamming and all the excitement going on, they must have been expecting us. The way they fusses over Mr. Dallas is proof to my mind that somebody must a told em in advance that he belongs to the real quality down where we comes from, and I certainly is puffed up with pride to be along with him because if he had been the king of Europe, they could not have showed him no higher honors than what they does. No sooner does we pull up at the curbstone in front than a huge, big, tall white man, dressed up something like a Knights of Templar, is opening the taxi-hack door for us to get out, and two or three white boys in militia suits comes a-running at his call and snatches the baggage away from me and another member of the Grand Lodge, in full uniform, is standing just inside the front door to give us the low bow of welcome, as we walks into a place which it is all done up with marble posts, and with red wallpaper on the walls, and gold chicken coops on every side, until it puts me in mind of a country nigger's notion of heaven. Over at the clerk's enclosure three white men is waiting very eager to receive us, which each and every one of them is wearing his dress-up clothes, with a standing collar and long-tailed coat, the same as though he was fixing to be best man at a wedding, or pallbearer at a funeral or something else extra special and fancy. 
for all it's summer time there is not nobody loafing round there in his shirt sleeves i bet you there ain't one of the pall-bearing gentlemen shoves the book round for mr dallas to write his name in it and the second one he reaches for the keys and the third one he looks to see if there is not some mail or telegrams for him it takes no lessen a number than three of them white boys in the soldier clothes to escort mr dallas upstairs and a fourth one he grabs up my valise and takes me on an elevator to the servants annex he don't have to run the elevator himself neither there's another hand just to do that alone and all my white boy has got to do is wrestle my baggage it's the first time in my life ever i has had a white person toting my belongings for me and it makes me feel kind of abovish and important also i takes notice that when he gets to my room he keeps hanging round fussing with the window shade and first one thing and then another same as if he was one of the bell-boys at the hotel down home waiting on a travelling man course he's lingering round till he gets his tip for quite a spell i lets him linger on and suffer i lets on like i don't suspicion what he's hanging about that away for then i slips him two bits and i don't begrudge it to him neither account of it giving me such a satisfactory feeling to be high-toning a white boy i says to myself that if this here is the annex where they boards the transom help footnote it is believed that jeff meant transient End of note. what must the main part of the hotel where the regular guests stay at be like because my room certainly is mighty stylish looking and full of general grandeur but i ain't got no time to be staying there and enjoying the furniture because i knows mr dallas will be needing me for to come and wait on him so i starts right out to find him and it seems like i travels half a mile through them hallways before i does so he's got a big setting-room all to himself and a fashionable bedroom and a special bath and a little special hall and all i says to him i says mr dallas they sure must be monstrous set up over havin you pick out they hotel for us to stop at look how the reception committee turned out for you downstairs in full regalia look how they mounty nigh broke they necks for to usher you in in due state and now ef they ain't done gone and sign you to the bridal chamber and give you the upstairs parlor for your own use moreover it pintedly indicates to me at they sets a heap of store by you he sort of laughs at that why jeff he says if you think this is a fine layout you should see some of the other suites they have here i says i ain't cravin to see em i done seen sweetness nuff as tis they suddenly is usin us noble he says they should ought to use us noble seeing what the price is they charges us he says do you know what i'm paying here for the accommodations for the two of us i'm paying twenty-seven dollars and a half i says to him if that's the case he better let me clear out of there right brisk and skirmish round and find me a respectable colored boarding-house somewheres handy by so's to cut down the expenses because i don't care what anybody says 
twenty-seven dollars and a half is a sight of money to be paying out every week. He says, twenty-seven and a half a week, huh? Remember, Jeff, we are in New York now, where everything runs high. This stands me twenty-seven and a half a day. I says to him, I says, Wooey, I says. No wonder they can provide fancy garments for all the hands and buy solid gold bars for the cage where they keeps them clerks penned up. Mr. Dallas, I says, it sure is behoovin' on us to eat hearty three times a day in order for to get our money's worth whilst we's boardin' year. He says, though, for me not to overtax my appetite just on that account, because the eating is besides. He says we pays twenty-seven dollars and a half a day just for our rooms. I says to him, I says, Mr. Dallas, let's get out of here before they begins chargin' us up for the air we breathes. He says, you're too late with your suggestion. They do charge us for that. The air is all cleaned and cooled before it comes into these rooms. Then I knows for sure he is burlesquing me. Who's going to hold the air whilst they cleans it? And the good Lord himself can't chill air to order in the middle of a August hot spell, let alone a lot of folks running a hotel, can he? I asks Mr. Dallas them questions. But he just laughs and says to me that there's not no need to worry, because he won't be staying there only just a day or so. He says Mr. H. C. Rayner, which is his principalist friend in New York, and the one which he's thinking about maybe going into business with, has done devised for us to hire some ready-furnished quarters still higher uptown. He says something about em being soublette quarters in a department house, Leastwise, that's what I makes out of what he says. That's news to me in more ways than one, because, in the first place, I didn't know any of the soublettes, which is a very plentiful white connection in our county, had done moved up here to live, and in the second place it seemed like to me there just naturally couldn't be no more uptown to New York City than what I already had done observed coming from the train. He goes on to say he is expecting to hear from the gentleman almost any minute now, and then he'll know better what the program is. Almost before he gets the words out of his mouth, the telephone bell rings, and sure enough, it is this here Mr. Rayner which is on the wire, and it turns out that the place where we're going is ready for us now on account of the folks which owns it, having gone away sooner than what they expected and the further tidings is that we can move up there that same day, which we does, along about an hour before supper-time. I notices they don't make near as much fuss over us going thence from there as they did whilst ushering us in. I judges the man what owns the hotel must be feeling kind of put out about losing of all that their money which we'd be paying him had we a-stayed on. We gets into a taxi hack and we rides for what seems like to me it's several miles and still are not nowheres near the outskirts as far as I can judge. And when finally we gets to the new location I has another astonishment. 
for here all day I've been expecting we'd land at a private residence, but this place to which we've come at don't look like no private residence to me. It's more like the hotel we just left, only more bigger and mighty near as tall. In all other respects additional, it certainly is a grand establishment. It's got a kind of a private road so carriages can drive in under shelter off the sidewalk, and way back inside is a round piece of ground all fixed up with solid marble benches and little cedar trees and flower beds like a cemetery. I thinks to myself that maybe this here is the private burying plot for the owner's family. But still there ain't no tombstones in sight excepting one over the front door with words cut on it, and since I figures I has done showed ignorance enough for one day, I don't ask no fool questions about it. The help here also wears fancy clothes, but is my own color. I'm glad of that because I counts now on having some black folks to get acquainted with and to talk to but just as soon as one of em opens his mouth and speaks, I knows they is not my kind, even if they is my complexion. Because he don't talk like no white folks ever I knowed, and yet he don't talk like none of the black folks does at home. Still, just from his conversation, I can place him. There was two just like him which was brought along once by a northern family staying in our town, but they didn't linger long amongst us. They didn't like the place, and no more the place didn't like them. They claimed they was genuine West Indians, whatever that is, and they made their brags constant that they was also British subjects. But Aunt Dilsey Turner, she always said they looked more like objects to her. Aunt Dilsey, which she was Judge Priest's cook for going on twenty years, is mighty plain-spoken about folks and things which she don't fancy, and she did not fancy these two none whatsomever. When we gets upstairs to our section, I'm sort of disappointed in it. The furniture ain't new and shiny like what I naturally expected twould be. Most of it is kind of old and dingy and hacked-up-looking. The curtains at the setting-room windows is all frayed-like and mighty near wore through in spots, and the Soublette family must a run out of money before they got round to buying the carpets, because they is not no carpets at all, but only a passel of old faded rugs scattered about the floor here and there. Some of the chairs, the best company chairs too, is so old they is actually decrepit. I'd say that by rights they belonged in a second-hand store, or leastways, up in the attic. Moreover, they ain't no upstairs to our department, nor yet there is not no downstairs nor no cellar, but instead, everything, kitchen, pantry, and the rooms for the help and all, runs on one floor. But Mr. Dallas, he deports himself like he is satisfied, and it ain't for me to be finding fault if he sees fitten not to find any. Anyway, I is so busy for a little while flying round and getting things unpacked that I has no time to utter complaints. 
pretty soon though i has to knock off hanging up mr dallas suits to mix a batch of cocktails from the private stock he has brought along with him in one of his trunks because this here mr raynor he telephones he's bringing some of his friends for a round of drinks with mr dallas and then mr raynor says they'll ride out in his motor car to a roadhouse to get em some dinner i takes his message off the telephone and i knows that's what he says surprising though it do sound that's a couple of new ones on me eating dinner when it's already mighty near past supper time and eating it at a roadhouse too i says to myself that new york city is getting to act more curiouser to me every minute i stays in it because the only roadhouse ever i knowed of by that name used to stand alongside the toll-gate just outside the corporation limits on the mayfield road and the old white man which collected the tolls lived in it his name being mr jip bayless but the gate is done torn down since the public government taken over the gravel roads and anyhow even in its most palmiest days none of the quality wouldn't never think of stopping there at that little old rusty house for their vittles they'd mighty near as soon think of having a picnic at the pest house still and notwithstanding mr dallas ain't indicating no surprise when i conveys to him what mr raynor says so i reflects to myself that if tollgate houses up here is in proportion to everything else this one which they're aiming to go to must probably be about the size of a county courthouse with a slate roof on it and doubtless a cupola so i just gets busy and mingles up a batch of powerful tasty cocktails in the shaker i knows they is tasty from a couple of private samples which i pours off for myself out in the pantry my experience has been that the only way you can tell is a cocktail just right is to taste it from time to time as you goes along immediately soon here comes mr raynor with his friends which there is four of them besides himself one other gentleman named bellows and three ladies one of the ladies is older than the other two but decorated more younger if anything than what they is introducing her to mr dallas mr raynor says her name is mrs gaylord but they all calls her jerry she's pretty nearly entirely out of eyebrows but she has got more than a bushel of hair which is all kind of frozen looking and curled up tight on her head it don't look natural to me and i knows it ain't natural a little bit later when mr raynor sets down on the arm of her chair and throws his arm around her sort of off-hand and sociable like and she up and tells him for heaven's sake to be careful and not muss her up because she says she's only just that day spent forty dollars and four hours getting a permanent wave put in at that i says to myself i says well betwixt whites and blacks we suddenly is mekin the world safe for them beauty doctors niggers down south spendin all the money they can rake and scrape together gettin the kinkiness tuck out of they haids and fashionable ladies up year spendin therein gettin it put in it's a compliment to one race or the other but just which i ain't prepared to say 
The other ladies is named Miss O'Brien and Miss DeWitt, but it's kind of hard for me at first to remember which from which, seeing that the rest of the party scarcely ever calls em anything except Pat and Bill Lee. They is both mighty nice and friendly, but they is exclusively different one from the other. Miss Pat, she's got her hair chopped off short like a little boy's, and she acts kind of like a boy does too, free and easy and laughing a lot and smoking a cigarette so natural that it's like as if she must have been born with one in her mouth and it lighted. And yet for all that I seems to get the impression that way down underneath she's kind of tired of herself and everything around her. But this here Miss DeWitt, she is tall and slender and kind of quiet. She must have been feeling poorly lately because her face is just dead white and her lips is still bright red from the fever, and when she sets down in a chair she just seems to kind of fall back into it, all limp-like. She ain't saying much with her mouth, but she does a sight of talking with her eyes which is big and black and sort of lazy-like most of the time. She sure is decked up with jewelry like the Queen of Sheba, too. She's got big heavy necklaces round her neck and great long earrings in her ears and many bracelets on both her arms. She's even got two big bracelets clamped round one of her ankles which I judges she didn't have room for em nowheres else, and so put em there to keep from losing em. And when she moves the jewelry all jingles freely and advertises her. She walks with a kind of a limber swimming gait, soft and glideful. Of course it ain't exactly like swimming, and yet that's the only way I can designate what her walking puts me in mind of. She wears dead black clothes and that makes her paleness seem all the more so. Right from the first jump I can see that Mr. Dallas is drawed to her powerful, and I thinks to myself that if he's fixing to favor this here languid lady with his attentions, it proves he's got a changeable taste because she ain't nothing at all similar to Miss Henrietta Farrell which she is the one that he's been courting these past few months down in Kentucky. In fact, she's most teetotally unsimilar. This Mr. Bellows, which came with Mr. Rayner, he don't detain my attention much. If he wasn't there, you wouldn't scarcely miss him, and when he is there, you don't scarcely observe him. He makes me think of a neat haircut and nothing else. You just appreciate him being present, and that's all. But I studies Mr. Rayner every chance I gets, the more especially because he's the one which is more or less responsible for us having come north. He's very cheering in his ways, laughing and whooping out loud at everything, and poking fun and telling Mr. Dallas that he must be good friends with Mr. Bellows and the three ladies because they is all four of em his friends. But I takes note that when he laughs he don't laugh with his eyes but only with his mouth, and when he sort of smiles to himself quiet-like it puts me in mind of a man drawing a knife. I can't keep from having a kind of a feeling when I looks at him. 
well they imbibes up all the cocktails that i has waiting for them and a batch more which i makes by request and then they packs up a couple of bottles one scotch and one bourbon to take along with them for to refresh themselves with at the roadhouse and off they puts and the last thing i hears as they goes down the hall is mr raynor still laughing from off the top of his pallets and the sickly one mr witt's necklaces and things all jingling like a road gang mr dallas he calls back to me from the elevator that i needn't wait up for him because it is liable to be pretty late when he gets in but it's a good thing i does wait up dozing off and on between times because when he arrives back along about half-past three in the morning he certainly does need my assistance getting his clothes off of him not since dryness come in has i seen a young white gentleman more thoroughly overtaken than what he is and we got a plenty vigorous drinkers down our way too and always did have so then i goes to bed myself and that's the end of our first day and the following day which it was yesterday is the day i gets lost which i will tell about that next end of chapter three